Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, Digital Skills Lecturer in the Department of Psychology and a researcher at the Assisting Living and Learning Institute at Maynooth University, is my guest on the podcast today. So as a graduate from the Trinity Access Programme herself, Katrina's research focuses on the impact of such programmes which attempt to raise the aspirations of underrepresented students. She has worked with Microsoft to develop DreamSpace, an immersive learning hub, and has been the recipient of funding from Science Foundation Ireland and the Irish Research Council, to name but a few. And as I'm sure we will discuss in this podcast, Katrina has had an incredible journey into academia. And so with that in mind, I am very excited to start our conversation, Katrina. So thank you so much for coming on Unraveling Science. Thanks so much for asking me to be on. I was actually quite nervous when I got the invite because I always have this kind of like imposter syndrome. It's like, am I really a scientist? And 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 do I know enough about cells to be able to talk about this stuff? But yeah, I, I'm really delighted to be here and thank you so much for asking me. Well, I think like kind of what I've tried to do with this podcast is kind of break that down as in it's not just people who work in biology or in cells you know what I mean I know that's my background but I've in a way I've kind of branched out my own comfort zone speaking to astronomers and um you know food scientists and psychologists like yourself so yeah no you're definitely well placed in this podcast I think <laughs> I think it's actually really important though to have that conversation because especially women you know we don't really know that science isn't just this really mathsy kind of uh you know stuck in a in a lab kind of place to work like it's so varied like you said and so when you did ask me I was excited but nervous and then I was like actually you know this is really good to showcase that there are actually different types of scientists and that we all are women but doing great things in science exactly yeah definitely so I suppose you know I kind of like to start off and talk you know talk me through your journey through academia and one of the questions I tend to ask people is you know when when you were kind of in primary school like what were the aspirations back then and did you ever see yourself in the job that you are today so I'm just wondering yeah talk me through that and maybe what what childhood looked like for you so for me like um and I've spoke about this a lot I really come from a really disadvantaged background so like my I always say this my my dreams were pretty limited by my environment and that's not that I didn't have potential as a young girl because I've always been kind of vivacious and bright and outgoing and uh, I loved reading but I never really had any um, experience of education like my mom left school after primary school and my and my dad was in prison and so and there was a lot of drug addiction in my household and so for me like childhood was literally about survival and my dreams are really limited now don't get me wrong like lots of the girls that I 
hung around with I wants to be Madonna like literally wants to be Madonna like I dyed my hair like Madonna I wore a, a white glove at one point and then I, I also played sports I wanted to be a soccer player and then I realized girls couldn't do that but I never you know I never really aspired to academia or I never actually even saw myself finishing school because I didn't really you know most of my family didn't finish school so school was like something to be endured but saying that in primary school I I loved learning I always loved to learn I think that's one of the gifts that my dad gave me is that he loved reading and I loved to read so while I had this like traumatic kind of childhood going on around me I didn't really dream of a lot of things I did love to learn and I think that that's something that stayed with me and kind of brought me to where I am is just this love of learning um and so yeah that was my childhood it was really horrific <laughs> and um I'm I think I'm really lucky to have come through uh but I I didn't really dream of much and yeah. my dreams were quite limited like was that you know um solely down to your immediate family situation or in the community that you were in was that also kind of adding to it as well both so both I actually having become educated I realize now that uh, a lot of people who are similar are are bunched together. So like we live in the same communities and we're actually placed in the same communities uh, by, you know, council estates and stuff like that. So where I lived, yeah, everybody was pretty similar. So nobody, so like my neighbors were the same. They finished school, you know, they were working class or even underclass. Now I know what that's called. We were pretty much the worst of the worst, though, in our in our area because my mom and dad were heroin addicts. So, you know, there was a lot of addiction and a lot of, you know, um, there was, you know, fellas who had a milk round and there was people, you know, women who were cleaners and stuff like that. But that was really the limit of the jobs that I saw. So even if I was to dream beyond what was happening, it would be like beautician, hairdresser, uh, childcare worker or some something along that line mm-hmm. and you never I never really saw anyone outside of that never knew anyone who went to university so it, it literally was there were the go- there were the jobs that you did so my whole community was like really working class and never considered education actually we used to look down on people who went to university it was like they were kind of wasting their life or something really <laughs> yeah like um, I actually had a conversation with my my brother a few years ago when I was just finishing my PhD and I remember him saying to me clearly do not talk to your niece my niece about university she is not wasting her life into university and this was only like seven years ago um so like there's pretty negative opinions about people who get educated and whether that's fear or whether that's ignorance or whether it's just a lack of understanding of what education can do. I think it's a mixture of everything. So that's a long answer. But yeah, I never yeah. really saw anything other than working class jobs and prison and drugs. And I wonder just when you're saying, you know, that that your brother was like, don't, don't kind of encourage university. Is that perhaps a sense of like, you know, there's not a perhaps not a concrete job in some courses. So, you know, yeah. the way if you if you go to become a teacher, you know, you're going to be a teacher, whereas perhaps with psychology, it was like, what are you? What Because I know with science, that's what I got as well. You know, yeah, no, job. <laughs> as soon as I got into the access program, actually, the first question that all my friends asked me, well, it was three questions, right? The first 
the first question was like, will you get to keep your social welfare payments? That was the, literally the first question. The second question was um, like, who's going to, who's going to look after your son? Cause I was a lone parent at the time. Like who, who's going to help you like? And then the third question was uh, like, what will you be? Like, what's the job? What's the job? And now in all the work that I do, especially when I do outreach in schools or I go to like adult learning centers, or we try to develop things. One thing that people really want to know from working class communities or communities like mine is what will you get paid at the outcome and what will the job be like that concrete kind of outcome is really important and did you grow up in the UK or in Ireland I was confused by that I I grew up in the UK so I was actually back and forward between the UK and Ireland so my my dad is from uh, Dublin and my mum's family's from Kildare so I but we used to come back and forward a lot between Ireland and the UK but I grew up went to school in the UK I came I suppose back to Ireland I always see Ireland as being my home um, and so I came back to Ireland full-time when I was 21 my parents had come back full-time and I kind of followed them back over and lived with my granddad's for a good few years and then moved into town lived in Summerhill for a good few years as well so I was so, back and forward so I suppose kind of one of a, a very important moment in your life was you know when you became pregnant with your son who I know is very successful now and um, so talk to me about you know that mentality because I know you were you were quite young and you were still in school I suppose did you at the time think that that maybe hampered your your education um aspirations yeah so um I think in my life, I think this is quite common. Well, for me, you know, if you think about my, I think about my life as like um, walking through a sand pit. No, that sounds mad. <laughs> when I was a kid, the sand pit was pretty deep. And so it was like kind of sludging forward. And the stuff that was going on in my family kind of slowed down my progression. And then when I hit my teenage years, you know, I kind of had choices to make. But when you're in a family like mine, a community like mine, it's very, very difficult to be different. So like when I was 12 or 13, I was really into, I was really good at English. I was really good at science. I was really good in school. Like I actually had the potential, really fast thinking and good at problem solving. And I like, I just had a natural, I think, quickness in my mind um and so like at 13 and 14 when I was strudging through the mud through the sandpit trying to get somewhere I had also this positive stuff going on that was kind of lifting me out lift like it was kind of like a step it's like so school was a step and had a really great teacher Mr Pickering who really put a lot of work into me and belief in me but on the outside I had other things add into the sand so I had like you know, embarrassment because I'm becoming a girl and everyone knows about my mom and dad and I'm embarrassed and I've no one to talk to. And so there's like this, I'm still trudging forward and there's good things going on, there's bad things. And so at 15, um, when I got pregnant, it was like just a whole load of sand just got added. And I literally just was like, I cannot keep pushing trying to do well in school because I was trying my best but it was just too hard without support without with all the drama going on the trauma at home and when I got pregnant my parents kicked me out so I was homeless and I just I just left school I just said you know what I just can't I just can't do this anymore and I was ended up being in a homeless hostel for 
18 months with my side squatting actually sleeping in flats and squatting in places and then I ended up in a hostel with my son for 18 months and I just kind of gave up on the idea of being in school and what was amazing is I got a place of my own and that teacher Mr Pickering I remember I was at home with my son he was like a year old or something and I was really struggling it was it's really hard to be a parent at 16 it's hard to be a parent now at 44 let 43 let alone 16 but I remember I was, I was doing something in the flat and there was a knock at the door and I opened the door and it was Mr Pickering and I was like hi sir there's me a ma'am like embarrassed hi sir and he's I was like he's like oh I, I'm so glad I found you he said um I've arranged uh if you want to do it, I've arranged you for you to finish your GCSEs, your maths and your English, just them, because they'll get you somewhere in life. And I've arranged for childcare for you. So if you can just come in a couple of hours a week, you at least get that. And I was so moved by this man who had invested so much in me um, that I actually went for a few hours a week after my son was born and did my maths and my English GCSEs. Now, I actually, I actually missed my last maths exam. However, I got my English and I nearly finished my GCSE. So, but like the pregnancy and the homelessness just were like too much for, for me to continue. And so I just kind of gave up. I just, you know, I just said, you know what, I'm just going to accept that this is my life and do the best I can with it. And so, and that's what I did. I finished though, I did the English and I did the half of the maths, which was great. So I was delighted with that. And then I just kind of, you know, spent a good few years, then five years cleaning, uh, working in a cafe and constantly feeling like though, there has to be mm-hmm. more to life than this for me. You yeah. Know? God, that's actually, it's very heartwarming to think of your teacher coming knocking on your door because some of the things I do ask people is like, who would have inspired you or who was the person who kind of spurred you on in your early years? And that is, wow, that's amazing. The fact that he sought you out and had organized childcare, you know? Yeah, he, he was an amazing man. Um, he actually wasn't, a, he come, came from like a, a mining background and left school at 16 himself and then ended up going back as a mature student. So he told me that story when I was in his classes. So he was really great. He really did change my life. I suppose there's three people like that that I can think of. And he really fundamentally at that point. And I always think that that's one of the things that made me so positive about education is that like that one person can actually really change your life. Even if you're only seeing them for an hour or two hours a week, like he had the biggest impact upon me in terms of believing in myself academically. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of, as I'm sure you would probably elaborate more on, that's part of the huge problem with with education is that maybe students don't believe in themselves and it's given them that belief that then they can unleash all this power. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a combination of things, but that education as a big opportunity to instill confidence in young people and that sometimes we forget that when we're focused on curriculum and leaving certain all the all the other things that we have to deliver or that has to be delivered we forget the opportunity that we have to actually transform how somebody feels about themselves and that um, how they see their future and um it is for me it's been one of the most important things that i've experienced to change my life Wow. Oh, my God. So I, I know then you, you came back to Ireland and 
Talk to you about, I suppose, that fortuitous meeting on O'Connell Street where you yeah. then, I, I mean, put you on a whole other track um, to where you are today. I think what's important to say around that fortuitous meeting is when I came to Ireland, like when I was 21, I really was at a low point in myself and I'd really begun a journey of kind of like healing. I know, and, and that sounds kind of cheesy and non-sciencey, but I, I think I really began a journey of trying to like heal from my, my childhood and my past and stuff. So I was very open to trying to like, you know, change my life. And I lived in Summerhill, which is Dublin one, and it's full of poverty and there's salt of the earth people. But one of the things I think is often overlooked is that there's such great services in communities like that, that are were fundamental to my life changing. So like there was local place, called, you know, there's a local guy called Joe who used to be able to pop in and say, Joe, like I, I, I'm struck for money. Like, where do I go? He was like community worker and he would point me in the direction. And, and Joe had been great for me. He'd um, pointed me towards like a personal development program. So I did a parenting course and I did a personal development program and all these things kind of, helped build me up as a human being but also taught me oh, I'm inquiring like I've a, you know my mind came alive a bit you know and um I Joe actually Karen who I met on the Connell Street is Joe's daughter so like salt of the earth as well Karen was kind of similar to me she had a kids she was on her own she was you know struggling to make ends meet and I met her on a Connell Street and I'll never forget meeting her and she I was like oh what are you doing unusual chat you know and she said I'm in Trinity College and I was like no way and I always say this you know like honest to God like anybody I knew went to Trinity was to rob bikes it was never to go it was at that now it's laptops it was bikes back in that day and I always say it and I was like no way and she's like I am I'm studying law and I was like how and she told me about the Trinity Access program and it was like she was on the first year and this is probably the third year of it because she was already in a degree or a second year so I'm like the third year or something of the mature students so I um I was 23 and I literally, I was like, where is it? And she told me it was in Pier Street. I literally went over that minute. And I, you know, with, with women like me, and one thing that's really overlooked is like, there's this kind of like deficit language sometimes when you think about access students or people who come from poverty or, you know, underrepresented groups. Like there's this deficit charity language, but like without recognizing, like I am such a resilient human being like I've been through the mill I uh, you know I am a fighter you know and I'm bullshy and have all these skills and one of the skills was I, I'll definitely ask for what I want when I want it and so um I went straight over and I knocked on the door of the director and her name was Dori Irina and I was like hey I met Karen she told me about this tell me about and she she said come in come in sit down and she told me about the course and what it was about and I found myself telling her in my life story, random woman. And it was the first, I think, academic person, like other than teachers who had looked me in the face and said, you really have so much potential. I would love to work with you. And I, I remember like just stepping up mm. in myself, like just a little higher in my shoulders or something, feeling like, wow, this woman actually thinks I'm something. And Irene is another person in that story that actually changed my life because I actually, I applied 
and found myself in an interview. They're asking me about like why I was there. I didn't even know why I was there. I just knew <laughs> I wanted to change my life. But they asked me about books and I was like, I can tell you about books because I read and I, and they offered me a place and it was amazing, but also absolutely terrifying because it was like, oh my God, now I'm actually here. Yeah. I'm actually going to have to do this, you know, but uh, Irina Boydal was another person who changed my life. And that was the fortuitous meeting with Karen that yeah. got me yeah, into Trinity. And so the first year of the kind of Trinity Access program, is that kind of uh, general and then you choose or how does it work? Yeah. So what happens is you go in, you do a couple of weeks of like taster courses. The Access program is split into science and then arts and social sciences. Everybody does maths. Everybody does study skills. Everybody does like education kind of guidance. So everybody does that together. And then you, you do like taste that. So I did, you do taster of biology, physics, chemistry, psychology, philosophy, law, sociology, politics, and then you pick. So you say, do I want to be a scientist? Do I want to be a social scientist? Blah, blah, blah. And then you pick then your subjects for arts and social scientists. My problem was always, I loved everything and I still love everything. Like you could tell me about, I don't know, law or whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm a learner. I definitely am. So it was difficult for me to decide. One of the things that actually drove my decision to take the social sciences was the time needed because I was a single parent with my son. I actually just couldn't, I felt like the, the catch up that I'd need for biology, chemistry, advanced maths would just be too much for me with, with him. So I, I thought the social science would be an easier option. It actually isn't an easier option, but at the time I was trying to be strategic. And so, and I also loved psychology. And so I took, I, I took psychology, philosophy, uh, law, and English because I thought I was going to do English I thought that was going to be my love but it, it wasn't it put me off English really uh, oh yeah it did and it was great that I got an opportunity to do that because if I'd have gone straight to college yeah I would have just applied for English because I had a great English teacher Mr Pickering I thought oh, I want to be an English teacher because he's an English teacher so but actually I hated it ruined books for me <laughs> so I hated the English but I loved the psychology and I loved that Psychology was um, really scientific and it and it taught me how to answer questions, ask questions scientifically and then go out and answer them questions, which I really needed to learn. And it was a skill that I was just in awe of. So mm. it actually is the science, the scienciest of the social science, if you get what I mean. Yeah, no, definitely. And when you went into psychology then, like was that with everyone else in Trinity, like as in people who just yeah. the CAO or whatever? In the, the foundation course, no. So foundation courses, um, the, there was a lecturer from psychology, Ray, who uh, Ray Fuller, who used to deliver to us in the back of college. So we had our own psychology course. So he did like intro to psychology. So yeah. it was separate. And then when you get into Trinity, then you just go in with the general entry group. So, but your the access course is delivered separately. It's not joint. It's not yeah. joined with the rest of the college. So there is that sense of being kind of separate. And like, oh, am I really good enough? And am I really a Trinity student? And because you're at the back as well, you're in Pitt Street. So you're kind of like in the back door. And there's that feeling of like not belonging in a sense. So, but then you go in and you join all the others who've got like 560 points and have to go through that whole feeling of like, oh my God, am I going to be as good as these guys? You know, do I have the ability and all that other stuff? 
And did you find that transition hard or did you settle in? Yeah, I found it hard. Um, I think as a, as a person who's had trauma, like just to say that, I find any, I find, I don't find social situations hard, but when it comes to like meeting new people, I'm just really aware of my own history and feel a little bit different and ashamed of myself. I never really knew that at the time. Um, but in a situation where like, I remember my first week or two, we had a lecture and they asked us to, to write down like three resilient experiences and three challenges in our life. And I was sitting next to a girl who's absolutely amazing. And I really made friends with her in the end, but she was like, I can't think of one challenge. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't think of one resilient thing. So there was a feeling for me of difference. And again, being a lone parent and a little bit older, it was harder to feel like I belonged socially. I don't think I ever felt like I belonged socially in Trinity. However, academically, I after the first year, when I got a 2-1 in my first year, I was like, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm rocking at this. Like, I'm actually really clever. And that was amazing. That was just to feel that I am, like, when you grow up like I did, and you grow up in a working class community or uneducated, you definitely internalize the norms of, the education system so if you don't get 600 points you are not clever if you don't get 500 points so really that is communicate all the way through the system and when I got into Trinity and started performing well not well really well Mm. I was like oh my god that's all a lie like so there was you know this all the social side wasn't great because I was really insecure and nervous and didn't feel belonging but the growth in terms of my self-esteem and my ability and my knowledge was like I'm I'm really good at this and also just to go back to that skill of like asking for what I want I was like class rep in second year because I was so mouthy (laughs) and also I had no problem kind of like like most people who sit in class with mature students they'll all know you know they're the ones who ask the questions yeah. because they've been there the life you know I can't I've no patience you know just tell me yeah <laughs> the, but the, the, the same thing for me I was really good at seeing opportunities so even from second year on I began to like volunteer for studies started to like invest my time in actually just networking and growing my capacity to learn about what psychology is so while socially I hated it I didn't I didn't hate it I just felt so different but emotionally and academically I just felt like I was just blown away every day was a it was just a blessing every day I mean, it's so impressive to think because I know you graduated then with a, a 1-1 degree at First Class yeah. Honours. And to think that uh, apart from everything else going on in your life, you also were had a son at home. You know, I just think yeah. it's amazing that you did achieve so well being a single mother because that in itself is a challenge, you know? Well, yeah, I met my husband actually in first year and then I got pregnant and had a baby in second year. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't defer either. So I had, to, I had taught Sean then in second year in February and I sat my exams in the May and I ha- and I got a 2-1 in second year and then so like I yeah but I, I wouldn't recommend that for everybody I think another consequence of just having the life that I've had is that sometimes I don't recognize limits and actually just push myself 
beyond, you know, there's, there's something about overperforming that's just in my nature. And so the, I have had to learn how to kind of like have a bit more balance. But however, yeah, I had a baby then in second year. Didn't want to make it easy on myself, of course. So I had a baby in second year. But yeah, getting through. But I, you know, I, I kind of think that having a child for me, actually, like I, it gave me a lot of skills that a lot of students didn't have. Like I was so organized, you know what I mean? Up for school in the morning, get the backpack, get the kid off. Get I've got three hours here to write this essay. I have no other time. I'm getting it done. I have to study. Like literally, I was like an army officer. You know, like boom, 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 yeah. get it done. So having a child was helpful at points for me in terms of like managing my time well. Yeah, yeah. it made me focus. So yeah, I don't see it. Other people see that and go, wow. You had kids, you were on your own. I don't I don't actually think that that's that great, but maybe I should. I just don't. <laughs> and and then I suppose um you then went on to pursue a PhD in psychology. Uh, what made you go down that route, like go down the academia route? So um when I finished my degree, so the story of when I got my one one, my first, was I actually remember going to the notice board in Trinity at the time they used to let you they used to put your numbers up like they actually listed you in your order of your of your grades and I I know but uh, I remember going from the bottom up thinking I'm gonna be at the bottom and get get into the two twos now get two ones oh I'm not there I'm not there I'm not there and then just above the ones there I was and I remember in the I screamed and everyone was really quiet all the students were looking like oh well yes that's my grade and I was like oh my god I've got a first I was like this embarrassing and David Heavey came out was like I'm so proud of you Katrina well done you know because I was just out there like what you know but um I loved research. Like I love, I love research. I actually, I cannot imagine my life without, without research in it. And I, and psychology just teaches you there's such a great balance between under human development and human behavior and the brain, but also how to ask questions and how to plan how to, you know, to do two scientific studies and then do analysis and quantitative analysis and qualitative. So I loved research from, once I accepted we had to do it because I fought it at first, the maths. Once I accepted it and realized what the value of it was, I just excelled at it. Mm-hmm. And so when I did my, so in uh, my final year project I did with Michael Gormley and I did, you know, I did some behavioral tasks and I was looking at smoking and addiction and I just excelled at it and loved it. But when I finished my degree, I was at that turning point. The working class head came. It was like, now I need to get a job. So I applied for jobs. And so I get a job, get a job. But then Michael Gormley, who was a great mentor to me, he was like, Trina, you, you really should think about doing a PhD by research. You, you're really good at this. And Hugh Garvin, another professor, had said the same to me. And I was like, well, I didn't even know what PhD stood for. And I, 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 I honestly still work, get the acronym wrong. But uh, he said to me, <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'll just look into it. So I applied for the, um, the students' scholarship and just to extend my final year project. And when I got offered that, I just, because I loved academia, I loved the, it wasn't academia. I never saw myself as being a lecturer or anything, mm. but I actually loved the learning and I loved the inquiring and and I loved Trinity and the departments and stuff. So I just said, you know what? I, I got a job and I was like, I'm not going to go for the job. I'm just going to do the PhD. So that was it. It was no big um 
plan. There's never been a plan. I literally always just go with what feels right. I li- and because I've lived on the bottom rung, I don't have a worry about money or anything. I just think, oh, sure, I'll always be okay. Like, I'll always be okay. Just go with what feels good. And the PhD felt good. And so I just went with it. And I loved it. Really enjoyed it. And, you know, I know that your kind of research focus now is, I suppose, improving the aspirations of students um, for access to education. And what do you think, you know, from from your experience and from your research are the main, I suppose, barriers for students in disadvantaged areas um, or those who just simply don't have the role models in their in their community? One thing that I realized actually when I became then a fully fledged scientist in this area was that a lot of the programs that we develop and deliver to try to widen participation of underrepresented groups in education or employment, they don't really have a lot of um, theoretical scientific basis for them so like my my I, I was lucky enough and have been lucky enough to be able to go off and kind of I suppose look at what we do in terms of widening participation but actually think about like what's the theoretical basis like what's the constructs here what are we actually trying to change and so um, what I've been able to do in my career, in my academic career, is identify, I suppose, three core. There's a couple of things, but there's three core. I suppose we think about um, human potential in terms of capital. So, like, what capital have you got or what capital do you lack in order to navigate a particular situation? And so, in terms of education, there's, a, there's some capital that students like me or students with disabilities or girls in STEM, they just don't have access to. It's not that they're in deficit. They just don't have access to it. And so in terms of, there's three types of capital that I've been able to kind of look at in my research. The first is social capital, which for me is like fundamental to uplift in hum, human life. And that social capital is having relationships with people within the place that they're trying to move to that are meaningful through which you can transfer information, trusted information. So that can be, for me, like having Mr. Pickering, having a teacher who I kind of relate to because he's got a bit of a story like mine, who I trust because he behaves in a way that's trusting all the time. And I believe his information. So that actually transfers what I believe I can do because mm. I, it gives me social capital. It actually says, oh, he's built a bridge for me. That information, I've internalized and said, if he can do it, I can do it. So firstly, social capital, it's actually, you know, exposure to people. So like girls who go to deaf skills just don't know that they can be in Trinity and succeed in Trinity. And so what we've done is I've looked at that in terms of social capital and then develop programs on the basis of that knowledge, like mentoring programs, going into universities, meeting other women who have done this kind of thing. The other thing then is the human capital and that's the skills. And I don't mean like that you're not, but like in terms of getting into university or working in, you know, as a lawyer, you you have to have the specific skills that are required that we set as the requirement for that. And so in terms of human capital, it's just, it might be the leave insert points. It might be the, 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 you know, entry to medicine degree, so what we've done is I've recognized, okay, girls like me, they, they lack the human capital. What can we do? It's very difficult to supplement the leave insert 
in deaf schools. So maybe we should reduce the entry requirements and actually do something else to ensure that these people succeed. So what you see in that type of construct is like, you might see there's a here and there scheme where the entry requirements are reduced and students are supported within the institution to meet that capital requirement to get the skills. So we recognize potential is there, but the skills are not there. And finally, the hardest bit to change is that cultural capital. It's actually just feeling like you can be yourself Mm. in that institution and you just know all the bits and pieces to get there that you need to do an after school program you have to do an internship you need to i don't know watch you know about a certain political party understand what couscous is have a skiing trip in your history they're the things that actually act as a big barrier as well they're i suppose the hardest thing to, ch to change in, in, in communities because they come through your family and through your life experience. But like, that's the model of, um, that's the scientific model of how you, how we try to empower people to move through. And then finally in that is that it, there's this idea of like, you're either capability, so choice, like a lot of young people or older adults just have never had the window shown to them. Mm. So like their wind, their, heart, their vision, like me, their dreams are limited. And so there's the whole human capabilities approach to this, whereby we need to let people feel like they're autonomous. They can choose their life. They can see different paths and then they can decide, actually, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to be a cleaner. I want to be a hairdresser. So there's another side of it about allowing people seeing all the potential and all the possibilities that are out there. That's a long answer. You're going to have no. to put that. <laughs> no, because well, I, I was going to say that I have done um, some work with uh, TAP, with the Scholars Ireland programme. I'm not sure if you're yeah. familiar with that. So yeah. essentially what we would have done is um, those of us who were selected, we were all PhD students and we would have designed like a six-week programme based on our uh, PhD study so mine was obviously in immunology and then we went out to disadvantaged area schools and, and taught that but what I found so striking because we, we did like a lot of workshops with TAP before we went into the schools was that how impactful it can be for the students to even go on a campus visit to Trinity yeah. like yeah so you just would never yeah. I just had never considered that you know when we did uh, so some of my statistical analysis the work trying to build a model of like what predicts the likelihood that these students will actually aspire to apply to Trinity. The biggest predictor was a visit to Trinity campus because they don't go. Like I was that I was that person. I thought you weren't allowed in, so actually going. And you know what? Like I remember working with Mercy in Shakur, which is a girls' school in in, in Shakur, and the girls are great there. But I remember them actually working with them longitudinally over a couple of years. And at the end of the two years, a couple of the girls saying, you know what? DCU has a much better campus than Trinity. Like seriously, I thought Trinity was going to be this and going to be that. And you know what? It isn't. They haven't got this. They haven't got that. And for me, I was like, we have done our work here. Whether they go or they don't go, they know. They know the campus, they understand that cultural stuff that you're, you know, that you're pointing to there is like going into a campus was actually one of the biggest predictors of whether they'll aspire to go there. So that's the kind of stuff that these programs do and should be doing and that everybody should be getting an opportunity to, I suppose, see what's on offer. But we don't get that. There's a, mm -hmm. you know, there's a limited few know they're going to go to Trinity and then there's a, 
a big majority who hope, and then there's a, a smaller, a small majority, but they are there who just will never, ever think that they can. And that's yeah. that. Uh, another kind of thing which I, you know, alluded to in the intro was your work with Dream Space. Yeah. So talk to you about that. I suppose, what is the aim of that? And also, I feel like you've had to adjust your um, program with COVID. So how that mm. has impacted it too. Also, working with Microsoft has been actually one of the high high points of my of my career. And and because like there's this view that multinationals are just like this big bad group of people who are just like looking to make millions and millions and take advantage of everybody. And and Microsoft, I don't know about the whole organization, but I know that Dreamspace and the, the people who run Dreamspace or involved in Dreamspace, they really believe that every everybody in the world and in Ireland particularly every student should be prepared for a scientific future and like we are in a technological revolution whether we like it or not and COVID has shown us more than anything else that we are literally in need of being able to use technology collaborate with it be creative with it and so my work with them has been about actually first it was about just evaluating the impact of uh, of Dreamspace. So Dreamspace is education model that, that brings kids in and gets them to collaborate, be creative, use technology and just learn how to, I just learned about AI and all these things that, you know, we not everybody's learning in school. So initially it was just about that. Um, and I obviously I was blown away by the ethos of the organization firstly, because they just want to change education for the better. And they're not saying that education is not good. They just want to add to it and ensure that we're preparing people for the future. The other thing that was amazing was just to see that this actual program works. Like people are more skilled when they finish. Kids love it. And my research has been able to show that this particular approach is great for students with special education needs. They're much like more likely to lead programs, lead projects. And obviously that um, COVID kind of threw this whole, um, this whole uh, delivery of Dreamspace. So Dreamspace went online. So Dreamspace TV partnered with RTE, was developed, and then they partnered with RTE to try and make sure that there's still STEM learning going on, science learning is going on, but on the TV. I was lucky enough to get an SFI rapid response grant to actually just look at homeschooling and look at the family and look at how we do it. And that has actually led to a real understanding of the limits in terms of and um, the lack of consistency across Ireland in terms of delivery of um, online classes, firstly, but also the skills in families mm-hmm. and the values that families have around STEM learning, STEM engagement, like how moms are not sure of themselves, don't really know, don't really feel like they can do it. So we've been on a real journey, but what's been great is been able to adapt with Uh, Microsoft and Dreamspace and actually see these programs being delivered. One thing that's emerged from it, and this is my new project with Science Foundation Ireland, is that young women from disadvantaged communities are the least likely to benefit from programs like Dreamspace, are the least likely to move into science careers, to science and technology and engineering and maths courses. And even if they do get in, they're most likely to drop out. So what we've done now is we've developed this new program called STEM Passport for Inclusion. We're going to be working with a thousand girls across Ireland, Munster and Leinster, with Munster Technological University. And we're developing this accredited pathway into university for 
women who working class girls who won't meet the matriculation requirements, but actually have the potential to do really well in science. So it's been like a mad journey in, um, with Dream Space, but it's actually great to have partners that are multinationals that you kind of, you know, I kind of have that fear around, well, I'm an academic and like we're, we're, we've this ethical standard and, you know, does Microsoft have the same? We're partnering with Accenture as well. Do they have the same? And actually they do. Like they really, really value this kind of um, work. So it's been amazing, really amazing journey. I mean, because I, I had looked up the STEM passport for inclusion because I saw that that was on your profile. And I just think it's a, it's such an amazing idea. And I even even without the kind of disadvantaged area background um, aspect of it, I do think there is such a def- deficit of women in STEM in general. Yeah, definitely. And the thing about it is, is the girls that we do do actually successfully get through they're, they actually, gen- if we go back to that model I talked about of social, cultural and humans, they have them. So they actually, the ones who do actually may have an experience of STEM in their family or they may have, they had a good experience in school with STEM. They had all the subjects on offer. They also may have had a mentor or someone supporting them through. Whereas you, if you add disadvantage, you add the intersectional layers. So you've got gender and, and then disad- and class what you see is they lack that. So even if they want to, they, they don't necessarily aspire. And if they don't aspire, if they do aspire, they can't get in because they lack the, the skills necessarily that are, you know, are, are a requirement for entry. So we're trying to keep the girls. There's loads of great stuff going on with girls in STEM. And don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm all for women in science, but this is just particularly focused on them. Women who are, have that double layer of disadvantage, which is a significant issue. Yeah. Uh, and it's exciting. It's really exciting and scary because we've just heard that um, RTE are going to feature some of the researcher as as me as a change maker, hopefully, yeah. all, all going well. So um, it's exciting, but nerve wracking. Well, I, I, I still have, though, the kind of imposter syndrome. I'm always I'm always that first year undergrad in psychology that goes oh my God, I love this. This is amazing. Look what we're doing. Oh my God, my brain is growing. And then I'm like, oh my God, am I good enough? Is it going to be, Is am I going to get kicked out? Will I fail? You know, I don't know if everyone feels like that, but I, I do. I do think there definitely is a high level of imposter syndrome in academia, for sure. In, in my opinion, anyways. and from people I've chatted to on this podcast, I, I think uh, that is echoed. Um, I, Kind of another aspect, which I do actually tend to ask a lot of people, which I'm really interested to hear your point of view on, given in your current or your recent research on it is this idea of the motherhood gap and you know the, the fact that women especially when we get to a certain level of academia is probably the same level that you are at when you want to have kids for example yeah. um, and then you might be at a slight disadvantage and I think COVID especially with homeschooling and and I know this leads into your research and your recent research in this I think definitely has hampered or or in, not, maybe not hampered but impacted or affected um I suppose, female academics in a certain way. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Oh, definitely. So like the research shows that in terms of female academics, even in COVID times, like female academics are much more likely to engage in the service or support type roles in in times of crisis like this. So a lot of the female academics who are in universities are actually dealing with student issues and supporting students and teaching and, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas 
we do see that male academics are actually more likely now are still engaging in publications and everything else. Like I, I recently have been looking into this and uh, Journal of Sociology produced numbers that male uh, publications were up 45%, whereas female publications are down 15% within since COVID lockdown. And our research has looked particularly on this, the, the women, the working mother gap particularly and how um, it's like the fourth wave of, of, of feminism or the, you know, or the opposite of feminism whereby homeschooling is just, when I gave you that analogy earlier of the sand and walking through the sand, it's just another another thing that mothers and women have to tr- trudge through to be able to try and be successful. Like our research that we've re- we've just done on this has shown that temp- we did a survey of women uh, parents um, who are homeschooling. Like ten percent of the females who we surveyed actually have left their jobs, and these are women who are. And all the question I get is, Ah, sure, they were probably not really into their job like they were, these were pharmacists people in look in legal services these these were women who hadn't invested in their careers like there's actually a big big pressure on females at the moment especially not just women who who are mothers but women in general we are more likely to take service and to, to, to take them caring roles during times of crisis. And it, it's been seen across institutions. Now, I feel a little bit like a fraud because I have been quite successful in the last while, but I think at the cost of my own my own well-being at some point, and that's my experience. And I know just in conversations, every woman that I talk to in academia, the first thing we talk about is the stress, mm. the misery, when it's going to end, you know, and we all have a shared feeling of like, this is, this is really hard on us as women. Yeah, because I, and I, I'm going to forget one part of your, the title of your paper, but it was like, you're a mother, you're a worker. What was the third one? Um, I'm a mother, I'm a worker. And I'm, I don't remember the name. <laughs> I definitely have it written down. Hang on, I will, yeah. I'll tell you. Because I, I, I read it last night and I was like, this was, I just thought it was an excellent title for a paper you know because yeah, well that actually come from, that point. came from one of the yeah it came from one of the women oh no I don't know where it is but anyways anyone can, can look it up but yeah I thought it was a great kind of title for a paper and um, I suppose yeah. Katrina you know my one of my last few questions for you is you know what the the thing that makes you passionate about what you do why do you kind of get up in the morning to to do your research and what do you love about academia and then maybe <laughs> um briefly what are the frustrations you feel uh, about the job as well um so i think oh god what keeps me going i think i've been lucky enough to forge a academic career that lies between where I get to see my research applied. So I actually get to see the outcome of the research in a way that when I did my PhD, it was on neurobiology of the brain and addiction. And and it was very obscure, like it was very distant from humans. And as you probably can tell, I I like to speak, I like like to engage. And so (laughs) not getting a chance to see the impact was really hard for me, even though I loved the process so I've been able to forge a career where um, I get to see the outcomes of my research and I get to, I suppose I've got to work with partners, be it the access office in Maynooth, be it the Trinity Access Programme, be it um, the HEA or Microsoft and Accenture. I've been lucky enough to be able to do research that then translates into 
activities that hopefully change people's lives. And so I that's, I suppose, one of the really important benefits for me. Um, uh, well, it gets me out of bed in the morning. It's like, actually, this means something, you know. And not that everybody's research doesn't mean something, but for me, it means something. The other thing is, um, well, I actually just love knowing things. So I actually just love knowing things and actually asking questions, collecting data, analyzing. Like, my favorite thing is to do my statistical analysis. Statistical analysis. Don't get enough to do. I, get, I don't get, I'm doing so many other things. It's really hard. Like, Saturday, I spent the day on SPSS analyzing survey data and it was like a dream come true. I was like, oh my God, I love this. The P-values and what is was it significant and the men different than women and that I don't think I'll ever lose that passion yeah. for knowing things. Um, the other thing that gets me, like really, I gotta say, like my family is the most important thing to me. Like so I love my job, I love research, I love this, but like they're the thing that keeps me going. Like, you know, they're the, like this life that I've built in my, this success that I've built in my career actually contributes to me having a lovely home, great, great relationships with my kids and stuff like that. So sometimes when I'm doing the job and it's tedious and horrible, I'm like, actually, I'm building a great life for myself here. Don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, definitely. And I was going to just, because I'd said it earlier, you know, your your first son is now a, a soccer player over in the yeah. UK, which is incredible, you know, success for him too. Yeah. yeah. Well, John is, yeah, John is like, I always say my kids are my greatest success. The fact that they are, well, 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 almost well-rounded human beings they're the best i could do anyway but the john is just you know he's 27 now he lives in england with his with his fiance he's playing soccer week in week out in league two at the minute and yeah he's just a really happy successful young man you know i i actually try not to focus everyone focuses on the soccer so they're like oh my god he's a soccer player that's amazing i just think he's a good person and he's kind and he's sweet and he treats his girl well and that's kind of the things that i try not to focus on his job because if you tried if you focus too much on somebody's job as just being there thing you forget like what's inside so I know it's great and everyone's amazed by it but to me the fact that he's a he's a healthy adult and that he's loving and we're really close really is the most important thing oh that's so lovely I try not to focus on the football because actually football is so up and down as well it's just it just you know it, it would be like me kind of going to you only asking you about your job always only asking you about your job not how you are how you feel or so I just try and focus on him as a as a human being and he's a great human being which is great and, wow. the, other, and the other two are amazing as well <laughs> <laughs> give them a shout out too yeah um, I suppose Katrina my last question for you is if you weren't um in the job you are in today um and you didn't and, and I know this is a hard question but where do you think your life would have ended up or what job alternatively do you think you could have I would have been Madonna, definitely. <laughs> I actually love, I love singing and dancing and performing art. So I genuinely, like, okay, so if I hadn't had the, if I hadn't found uh, the Trinity Access Programme, I probably would be just like, you know, running, I'd be working in a cafe. Like I was a cleaner in Connolly Station, like that was what I did. So I'd say I'd still be doing the same. And if I could, I suppose, choose a different career, I would have probably either sports or like coaching or 
um, singing, dancing, performing, that kind of thing. Because I kind of love all of that outgoing kind of stuff. Not that I do any of it now. I do it sitting at my desk with my earphones on, annoying the family. But that's probably where I would have ended up. It's hard to know, actually. Yeah. The one thing I'll, I'll say is, like, if I had planned my own life, I definitely didn't have enough vision to see this. Mm. So I was so limited in what I thought I could be. Sometimes we just have to go you just have to go with it. And what I've gone with has been way more than I could have ever, ever achieved or dreamt for myself. Well, I think on that lovely note, um, Katrina, it's been so great to talk to you. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your story and your research and, you know, every success with the dream space and STEM inclusion passport um, and everything else you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Megan. Great to meet you. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.